have a copy of God's Word this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Last week I was out and we're so very thankful for Dr. Bill Johnston and his message as we continued in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, Danielle and I, along with the boys, were able to spend time. We, as a congregation, are supporting a church plant in Las Vegas. And so we were able to be with that church planter, his family, for a few days. We were able to, while we were in that neck of the woods, able to go to the Grand Canyon and to Sedona and to uh, some of the great natural sites of that area like uh, Mesa, Arizona, where there is a, a spring training baseball field for the Cubs there. <laughs> so, so saw the Cubs and the Red Sox, and we had a great time. And we were able to spend a few days with the church planner, uh, Greg Spencer, and he is actually going to be, along with his wife and his children, with us the Sunday before the Southern Baptist Convention, which is here being hosted in Birmingham. And so you're going to get to meet him and see the work that God is doing in and through uh, that uh, church plant there. It's, it's really astounding. 15 minutes away from the Vegas Strip there, there have been thousands upon thousands of houses that have been built in the last five years, a completely new community, and so there's no church witness at all in this area. And so they're able, the Spencers are able to be living in that community, planting in that community, and so what a great privilege we as a church have to be able to come alongside of them. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Many of you are familiar with one of the first renovation shows. I mean, they're, they're on every channel, it seems, and it just seems that there, there's much TV that is produced around home renovation now. But there was a time two decades ago where if you were going to watch something like this, one of the first shows and only shows that you'd be able to see was called Trading, remember? Spaces, yeah. So Paige Davis was the host. The concept is, is pretty clear. You have two families that trade their houses for two days. They have a limited budget with a, a, a contract, or not a contractor, but a carpenter, and also two designers. And there'd be one room at the end of this 48 hours that would be renovated. Now, the stakes were pretty low. I mean, there were some outlandish episodes, but when you get down to it, they didn't have enough time, they didn't have enough resources, it's just a thousand dollar budget when they got started, they, they didn't have the ability to do much more than just a bedroom, the kitchen would never get touched, the whole house, of course, it would never get touched, so even if you didn't like what occurred, it was certainly inconvenient, but it was no threat to your property value, there was no threat to the property value of the neighborhood, because again, it was low stakes, and in some respects, when we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, we see a clear call to the renovation of your heart and my heart, our hearts as followers of Christ. And I think it's tempting for us at times to treat Jesus as an invited guest renovator. That we say to him, we'll give you access to this spare bedroom of our soul, but these rooms, no. We won't give you access to that. 
Uh, this area, we give you permission in this weekend to do with it as you please. Uh, for these 40 days, we'll give you access to this part. But this part here, we quarantine to ourselves and we hold on to. And it's important to understand that the Sermon on the Mount so clearly reminds us that when we follow Christ, that he brings a crane and a, a wrecking ball. That's exactly right. A crane and a wrecking ball called the Holy Spirit. And he desires to fully renovate every aspect of our life. And we see that so clearly in the intentions of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. John Stott, who was a longtime rector at All Souls Church in London, says that the end of Matthew chapter 5 is the highest peak in the mountain range of the Sermon on the Mount. That there are heights of obedience that are outside of our human intuition and desire to scale. That this is outside of our comfort zone in every way. Uh, Stott makes the comment, and we see it so clearly. Jesus is calling us to love those who do evil to us. Later on in Matthew 5, to love our enemies. And we understand that the Holy Spirit can only help us scale the heights of faithfulness that Jesus is calling us to in this portion of Scripture. Notice two truths in this section of your copy of God's Word. First, the, the nature of our renovation. Notice in verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus is summarizing three Old Testament passages here, one being from Exodus 21-24, another from Deuteronomy 19-21, and then we hear in Leviticus 24-19-20 a good summarization of this, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. It's important to understand the Old Testament law. We can lose this. That oftentimes, we, we fail to distinguish between the moral law and the civil law. The moral law, think of the Ten Commandments. Those principles in the law that transcend context. You have also within the law, you have the civil law given to the Israelites, not as a burden to bear, but as a gift. They have been set free from Egyptian rule. They had been set free from the law of Egypt. And the question is, is what do we do now as a nation? For 400 years, somebody else has told us what to do. We've got to now understand what does it mean to be a nation. And a part of understanding what it means to be a nation is how do we treat one another? And so the civil law gives specific details like this. One of the hardest things to do in any culture is to, to, to mete out justice. We're tempted to go to one extreme of being too lenient. We're tempted to go to the other extreme of being too severe. And so what the Old Testament law gives us as a principle in these three passages that now Jesus is summarizing is that if you steal something, you would not be stoned as retribution. If you were to lie, you would not lose your life. 
there was a sense of equity in punishment dependent upon what you had done wrong. And so this was a gift. Now, what had occurred is the, the followers of Jesus you have at this time in that ancient Near Eastern context, people given uh, permission to seek out revenge and retribution and to do that under the umbrella of God's word. So you were the original avenger of all the wrong that had come your way. And you felt, and this is how this passages were being used, you felt that you had the right to go out and in a uh, vigilante way be able to, to right the wrongs. And so Jesus says, no, 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 no. As a follower of Christ, I'm going to transform and I'm going to renovate even your tendencies toward revenge. And so he tells us the, the nature of our renovation and then he shows us the scope of our renovation. Notice that the scope of the renovation is displayed in these four quick illustrations here, each of which demands our attention. Verse 39, Jesus says, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. We think of a movie where someone says something that's offensive and and he or she slaps the person in the face and says, how dare you say that? Well, that's not the context in the ancient Eastern world. And so to be slapped in the right cheek is to be slapped with this back end. It is a shorthand way of if you're insulted, if you're slandered here, that our insults don't end up getting the last word for us is what Jesus is saying. Verse 40, if someone sues you for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. Again, it begs a little bit of further description. A tunic would have been the inner garment that was closest to one's skin. The cloak would have been one's jacket. So what Jesus is saying is that we, in the renovation process, are going to be conformed into people who are willing to give up even our essential possessions. Verse 41, if one forces you to go one mile, then go with him two miles. In that world, that Greco-Roman world of Jesus, you would have the Roman army that would come through a city and the civilians would be commandeered to be able to bring the Roman uh, Luggage, the Roman uh, army, edifices through the city for a Roman mile. And so that practice was known. And Jesus says, if you're asked to go one mile, you go two miles. You go over and beyond what you are demanded and what is even expected of you. Verse 42, give to the beggar. Don't refuse the one who comes to borrow from you. What is Jesus saying? That we're called in that renovation process to become followers of him who are generous with our possessions. Now, all of these illustrations... Beg further clarification. When you're reading through this, you either ignore it or you pause and you say, what is Jesus saying here? And it's very important that we take all of Scripture seriously. And in taking Scripture seriously, you need to understand that there are literary genres in Scripture. And if you're reading Proverbs, you're going to read that with expectations that are different if you're reading Luke in the Acts of the Apostles. You understand that when you're reading Revelation, you're reading apocalyptic literature, and that is going to be very different than reading parables. And so as Jesus is giving these teachings in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, there's hyperbole and exaggeration that is being used here. We take it seriously, but taking it seriously means that we don't always take it exactly literally. To actually literally live out some of what he is saying here, you would have first century disciples who had nothing but loincloths walking around in that world. That is not the purpose of Jesus' teaching here. You can take him literally 
not understand the literary devices and major in missing the point of what he is saying. Of course, if an evil person is breaking into your home, we can understand the importance of resisting that person for your safety and the safety of your family. Of course, if someone was publicly slandering you to right that wrong, uh, to defend yourself from a false accusation can be at times very appropriate. It's not wise indiscriminately just to give out keys to cars to anyone that might ask you for it. Of course, that's the case. Of course, you could be sued unjustly and at times, the proper Christian recourse would be to defend oneself. Of course, there are times where you're going the extra mile, and that could enable bad habits, bad hang-ups in a person that you love. Of course, there's a lot of equivocations that we could make at this point as we listen closely to Scripture. But with all of that, let's not miss the point nor dull. The strength of what Jesus is saying here, as a follower of Christ, he desires to renovate those deep rooms that oftentimes are off limits to the wrecking ball of the Holy Spirit. He is calling us to be people who are tendencies to discard those who wrong us. No, Jesus says, we're called to be loving to those who do evil to us. We, we're, calling to be, we're called to be people who, in the image of Christ, who can turn the other cheek. You say, I can't do that in my own strength. Of course you can't. But guess what? He is calling you into the image of God is, of his son. The, the very son of God who is despised and mocked and unjustly prosecuted, beaten and stripped crucified, and in his last dying breath, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And so that image of Christ Jesus is what he calls us to. He is calling us to not be people whose, whose cultural stream that we swim in is to hoard our resources, to gather them all together and protect ourselves and get the next, the best, the biggest he is saying that our resources are called to be a catalyst for the nations and we're to share them in such a way that it is a blessing not only to me, myself, and I, and not only to mine, but to the world. And so what Jesus is saying in this passage is, is that we must crucify what is oftentimes the idol of convenience in our lives. That at times we want to footnote that great hymn, I surrender all. I surrender all except, Jesus, let me give you a little fine print here. I've got a disclaimer here, and I want you to know I surrender all, but I'm not going to give up that room of my finances. I surrender all, but I'm not going to give up that room of my relationships. I surrender all, but I'm not going to give up that room of my thought life. I surrender all, but I'm not going to give up that room of bitterness. I surrender all, but I'm not going to let you have the keys to these places because these places are quarantined for me, and they're off limits to the work of the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is calling us to is to understand that when we are followers of Christ, there's no part of our life that he doesn't have purview over. 
There's no part of our life that he doesn't desire to renovate, to look more like the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He desires for us to have the mind of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit, the love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness, faithfulness and self-control begin to exude from us. And oftentimes we will go as far as Jesus would call us as long as it's still convenient. I will give you all of my life as long as it fits into a five-year plan that I have for my family. I will give you all of my life as long as it fits into my budget as I have deemed it appropriate. I will give you all of my life as long as it's still convenient to my whims and to my wishes. And here Jesus is saying in this passage of Scripture so clearly that we must crucify convenience. That he calls us in Luke chapter 9 verse 23. He calls us to deny self, to take up our cross, and to follow him. And what a powerful reminder that the idol of convenience must be toppled, and the work of the Holy Spirit is the great toppler of our convenience. How how do you receive the Sermon on the Mount? You know, it's interesting. How, How do you receive this word? Do you receive this word as this burden that you have to bear Do you receive this word as this great weight that is placed upon you and that you've got to do this to earn God's love? Can I I tell you that the Sermon on the Mount is to be heard in light of the gratitude of what he has done for you and for me in the finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That this isn't a burden to bear, that if you do this, then you will be loved by your Heavenly Father. But rather, as we have been loved by him, then we're invited to give all of ourself to him because the Father has given all of the Son to give us life now and life everlasting. And so it's not a burden to hear the Sermon on the Mount, but rather it's a blessing. It's not something that we do out of guilt, but rather it's gratitude that motivates us to say, here's the key, here's the key, here's another key, here's another key. Do in me what you wish because of what you have done for me. Tim Keller, the great pastor in Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan there, great author, many of you are familiar with, he told a story that is still uh, really powerfully poignant that, that I think is helpful for us to be reminded of this great gift that he gives us. He, he tells the story of this Russian czar who had a great friend of his from early on in his life that died, and that friend had a son, and the czar took the son into his household and raised him as his own. He clothed him, he educated him, he loved him. That was his adopted son. The adopted son grew up, became an accountant of sorts in the army, And he was given purview and responsibility to a certain sector. And he had privilege and he had the ability to fund a pretty horrendous gambling problem that he had. Well, as these stories always end up, eventually your cover gets blown. Eventually, you can only cook the book so long before you realize the writing on the wall. And this young man realized that his cover was blown and public shame was coming his way. And he thought there was no way out of the consequences that he wanted to live through. So, he had whiskey in one hand, gun in the other hand. And he tried one fateful night to drink his inhibitions away 
to end his life. He drank, and he drank, and he drank, and he eventually passed out. So this Russian czar was known for going incognito, for going among the people and dressing as a commoner and being able to walk in and through the land, to be able to hear the hurts of the people, the civilians. And so as the story goes, he was able to make his way into the room and he walked in to this adopted son and he, he saw whiskey, he saw the gun, and he saw the books. He saw what he was fretting over. He saw the shame. He, he saw the, the betrayal right there. And as the story goes, he pulls out a sheet of paper and he begins to write out every one of the debts. One by one, list them on a ledger. Second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. Fills up the sheet that would have led to this man's despair. And he pulls out a pen and he writes, All of your debts are covered, my son, by me. And he signed it, the czar. And he stamped it with his signet ring. The next morning, this young adopted son wakes up from his drunken stupor and he looks before him and he sees the same books, the same same empty bottle of whiskey, the same loaded gun there, but he sees something that is different on the table and that, that is different where all of his debts were lined up one after another. Who in this cruel way would list out everything that he had done wrong? But then he kept on reading and kept on reading and he saw, he saw the good news. He saw that although the czar had seen everything that he had done to betray him. Although he had listed all of the debts, that in that night the czar had looked over his shoulders and had seen the worst of him, but loved him anyway. Accepted him anyway. Forgave him anyway. And he saw with the signet ring imprinted upon it that his Debts had been canceled, and in that moment he realized that in the midst of his shame, in the midst of his disgrace, that he was accepted and he was loved. Understand the gospel. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ has lived in the shoes that you walk in. That he's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That there's no part of human existence that he has not walked in the midst of. And he has looked over the shoulder of every one of us in our shame, in our disgrace. Every one of our sinful debts have been counted, not ignored. Not passed off as a benevolent grandfather who just turns the other way. But rather have been listed and felt and embraced. And in the midst of your shame and my shame, in the midst of that laundry list of the worst of our thoughts, the worst of our actions, there has been one who has seen it and has paid for it. There has been one who knows it and has forgiven you. You are more loved than you ever could imagine. You are more sinful than you ever could imagine. 
You have debts that you could never pay, but you are accepted in and through the finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ that ultimately signs your forgiveness with a signet ring that is ultimately meshed with the ink of the blood of Jesus Christ for all of us who by faith would say to him, I repent of sin and I turn to you in faith. You are here to hear the good news that yes, you are loved. Yes, you're accepted. Yes, you are forgiven. And see, when we understand this and we embrace what he has done for us, that renovation project and the recesses and rooms that are so often off limits, I know you want to keep a room of bitterness away from the renovating wrecking ball of the Holy Spirit. I know you want to do that. But because of what he has done for you, that room is open to his work. I know you want to keep a room of your thought life away from the wrecking ball of the power of the Holy Spirit. But because of what he has done for you, you say to him, all of my life I give to you. That wonderful hymn writer, the early 17th, 18th centuries, one who many of you know as Isaac Watts, arguably one of the most influential hymn writers of all Christendom. And he has written these words that all of us or many of us know, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And then he comes to the final two lines. Love so amazing. Love so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. Let us pray. Lord, we pause to survey the wondrous cross of which the Prince of Glory died. And we bask in the good news that we are forgiven. We bask in the glory of our insurmountable debt that has been paid in full. And in light of what you have done for us, we give you our all. We give you our soul. We give you our life. Today we're tempted to quarantine certain sectors of our life away from your fresh wind and fresh renovating work. It's our thought life, a relationship, a habit, a hang-up, unforgiveness, our finances. Oh, the list is endless. We live in this illusion that we can follow Christ and keep sectors away from your work. But all of us, we give to you today because you have paid it all for us. It's in your name we pray, the saving name of Christ Jesus. Amen.